Ecclesiastes chapter 9, verses 1 through 12. For I considered all this in my heart, so that I could declare it all, that the righteous and the wise and their works are in the hand of God. People know neither love nor hatred by anything they see before them. All things come alike to all. One event happens to the righteous and the wicked, to the good, the clean, and the unclean, to him who sacrifices and him who does not sacrifice. As is the good, so is the sinner. He who takes an oath as he who fears an oath. This is an evil in all that is done under the sun, that one thing happens to all. Truly the hearts of the sons of men are full of evil. Madness is in their hearts while they live, and after that they go to the dead. But for him who is joined to all the living there is hope. For a living dog is better than a dead lion. For the living know that they will die, but the dead know nothing, and they have no more reward, for the memory of them is forgotten. Also their love, their hatred, and their envy have now perished. Nevermore will they have a share in anything done under the sun. Go eat your bread with joy, and drink your wine with a merry heart, for God has already accepted your works. Let your garments always be white, and let your head lack no oil. Live joyfully with the wife whom you love all the days of your vain life, which he has given you under the sun, all your days of vanity, for that is your portion in life and in the labor which you perform under the sun. Whatever your hand finds to do, do it with your might, for there is no work or device or knowledge or wisdom in the grave where you are going. I returned and saw under the sun that the race is not to the swift, nor the battle to the strong, nor bread to the wise, nor riches to men of understanding, nor favor to men of skill, but time and chance happen to them all. For man also does not know his time, like fish taken in a cruel net, like birds caught in a snare. So the sons of men are snared in an evil time when it falls suddenly upon them. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word, and we ask you to have us to open our ears to understand, to be able to focus our minds and uh, absorb what it is you would have us to learn and what it is you would have us to take away from this, to do differently in the week ahead. We thank you, Father, for this wisdom from above and from your word. In Christ's name we give you thanks for it. Amen. So instead of a handout today, you had an eye test. But I didn't want to have to go onto two sheets. And uh, I could have reformatted it, but then I wouldn't have had all my cool notes on there. So I just figured I'd go ahead and copy it as it was. So hopefully it will be of some benefit to you. I'll refer to it, especially for the first part, but after that, it's just as you have need of it or use of it. I will begin, although I didn't read this portion, I'll begin actually where I left off. I'll begin at 9.13 and move on from there through the end of chapter 10. And this is all about wisdom. And I actually changed the title of the message, the bulletin says joyful and prudent, yet the title is faithful, joyful, hopeful, and prudent. So that's hopefully enough because if I make it much longer, it'll just won't fit in any of my listings. So, and then on the web, it'll wrap and I don't like that. So hopefully that's long enough. All right. As I said, faithful, joyful, hopeful, and prudent, but I will begin with prudence and then we'll go in the order as uh, planned. So now first, 
starting at 9.13, and if you want, you can begin on the first page, the one with the color, and down near the bottom at verse, uh, at verse 13 of chapter 9. And let me read each of these portions. There are nine little vignettes of wisdom that are presented here. And so I'll get through the wisdom, I think, fairly quickly because I want to cover the others in a little more depth. First, Ecclesiastes 9, 13 to 18. This wisdom I have also seen under the sun, and it seemed great to me. There was a little city with few men in it, and a great king came against it, besieged it, and built great snares around it. Now there was found in it a poor wise man, and he by his wisdom delivered the city. Yet no one remembered that same poor man. Then I said, Wisdom is better than strength. Nevertheless, the poor man's wisdom is despised, and his words are not heard. Words of the wise, spoken quietly, should be heard, rather than the shout of a ruler of fools. Wisdom is better than weapons of war, but one sinner destroys much good. Now, the lesson that Solomon took away from it is that the wise are not heeded. They're not listened to. People listen more to the strong. And by strong, it could also mean the famous, the, you know, just the ones that are in the limelight. And so here, though, the wise man was heeded. He did save the city, but then he was forgotten. He was not appreciated for having saved the city. And yet, the point is that I think it's because it was a little city. Because it was only a little city, they all knew one another. They knew this man was wise. They went to him for advice. In a larger city, they might not have even had the wherewithal to go to this man and ask how to be delivered, and the city would have fallen. And that, that's, I believe, what is meant by the last phrase. Wisdom is better than weapons of war, but one sinner destroys much good. So that one sinner could be the king that is too proud to listen to those that are wiser than him. But yet, really, that's the hallmark of a good king is to recognize his own limitations and surround himself by people that are better than him at things. So that's the first lesson. The second starts in chapter 10. I'll read the first three verses. Dead flies putrefy the perfumer's ointment and cause it to give off a foul odor. So does a little folly to one respected for wisdom and honor. A wise man's heart is at his right hand, but a fool's heart at his left. Even when a fool walks along the way, he lacks wisdom, and he shows everyone that he is a fool. I want to focus on that at the beginning. Dead flies putrefy the perfumer's ornament and cause it to give off a foul odor. So does a little folly to unrespected for wisdom. So it doesn't take much to ruin things. I remember a long time ago, more than 30 years ago now, as a matter of fact, it was 30 years ago tomorrow that I got out of the Marine Corps. But while in... I remember hearing this repeated more than once, and it said, one aw shucks destroys a hundred attaboys. And it wasn't aw shucks. But, uh, you know, it's just, you get the point. You do something really, really good, and people might remember it until something erases it and everything else you ever did good. You just really need to screw up once. And uh, I've learned that from, from uh, Trevor in Stories of the Navy. As a naval officer, you just really screw up once, and then after that, you're not going to continue climbing up into command. It's just you're limited by one failure only. So again, a little folly can destroy a career's worth of wisdom that you've acquired. So it's wise to even refrain from making that one foolish mistake, indulging in that one foolish and flippant sin. 10.4. If the spirit of the ruler rises against you, do not leave your post. 
for conciliation pacifies great offense. Uh, a few months ago, Ziah was making a poster for putting up at his work, and it, it was pretty interesting. It had a, like a crown up on the top in the center and then big words saying, keep calm and carry on. So in other words, he's working at this fast food restaurant where you know one minute it can be all quiet and peaceful, and then, uh, and then a bus empties out into your parking lot, and pretty soon it's crazy at your counter. And so he's encouraging his employees to be calm, just stick to your post, do your duty, we'll get through this. And that's exactly what this wisdom is saying. Keep calm and carry on, even when you're being treated unfairly. And I think that does apply at these fast food restaurants. Uh, these poor people can bear the brunt of something that they weren't responsible for. And they really do have to learn to absorb the assaults of the enemy at the counter. You just wish they'd come up and give, give you their money and leave. But sadly, sometimes they have to give you a piece of their mind as well. So now, do your work well, even when you're unappreciated. And why is that that we're to do that? Because ultimately, our employer is God. In everything that we do, it's him that we want to please. Not we ourselves, not our bosses, not these customers that might be pesky. And so we really ought to do all things well for God as opposed to ourselves. Ecclesiastes 10, 5 through 7 and 16 through 17 kind of map together. And if you have a handout, you'll see how they do that. I have them kind of connecting out here on the right under this number four. When evil rises to the highest levels of authority, the people of the land will suffer. And let me read these portions. There is an evil I have seen under the sun, as an error proceeding from the ruler. Folly is set in great dignity, while the rich sit in a lowly place. I have seen servants on horses, while princes walk on the ground like servants. And then skip down to 16. Woe to you, O land, when your king is a child, and your princes feast in the morning. Blessed are you, O land, when your king is the son of nobles, and your princes feast at the proper time for strength and not for drunkenness. So you see, there is a proper time for feasting and perhaps even having a little too much wine. But it's certainly not when the enemy is at the gates and you're drinking to your doom. Then you have to have your wits about you. But that's when foolish leaders are indulging in such things. If you remember in the story of Daniel, where that's when the city fell, they were feasting and drinking and yet the enemy was invading at that very time. The uh, fifth point, and this is Ecclesiastes 10, verses 8 and 9, he who digs a pit will fall into it, and whoever breaks through a wall will be bitten by a serpent. He who quarries stones may be hurt by them, and he who splits wood may be endangered by it. Again, these are kind of truisms, but if you look at them, the first two say, he who digs a pit will fall, Whoever breaks through a wall will be bitten. And the next two say, maybe, maybe. I see in there the digging of the pit and the breaking through of the wall as being an evil person at work. They're digging a pit to entrap someone else. They want to capture somebody unawares. They want to steal from them. Breaking through a wall, the same thing. And so the next one, though, has to do with just workers as a side effect of their work being injured. So what this shows you is that bad things can come to us whether we're going about our proper business or whether in, we're indulged in some funny business. Yet, I believe Solomon differentiates between them with the will and the may. 
So in other words, he's implying that the evil will get their due. And yet, don't, let, don't be thinking that they will get their due in your presence where you'll witness it, and don't think that just because something bad happens to somebody, like when Jesus was asked about the tower in Siloam, who sinned? I mean, it was just assumed someone sinned. Someone did something wrong. Why else would this happen? And Jesus clarified, no, no. It's not that they sinned or their parents sinned, but something likewise could happen to you. So we just know that bad things happen to good people, and we have to be prepared to accept that. Uh, 10.10, if the axe is dull and one does not sharpen the edge, then he must use more strength. But wisdom brings success. God's creation was created by him for purposes, and they are created in wisdom. They are creating, created using rules by which God made everything. Those rules apply. You can ignore them, but you pay the price for ignoring them. So uh, years ago, Pastor Kaiser had a great sermon series called Laws of Harvest, where he talked about that. And you can see that the laws of harvest work for people and against people regardless of whether they're good or evil. They're just laws that God has put in place. It doesn't mean that he can't override those laws at his whim, but it just means that God has embodied wisdom in his creation. And so we're wise to learn it, and that's why it closes with it. But wisdom brings success. So in other words, sharpen your axe. You won't wear yourself out by the end of the day. The seventh point, starting at verse 11, a serpent may bite when it is not charmed. The babbler is no different. The words of a wise man's mouth are gracious, but the lips of a fool shall swallow him up. The words of his mouth begin with foolishness, and the end of his talk is raving madness. A fool also multiplies words. No man knows what is to be. Who can tell him what will be after him? The labor of fools wearies them, for they do not even know how to go to the city. Uh, when you read this section, it does seem like... Uh, there is a verse that kind of pops out, 14. No man knows what is to be, who can tell him what will be after him. I believe we have two types of fools represented in this text. The first is the fool that is just self-apparent. He just runs his mouth all the time, and he doesn't know what he's talking about. Everybody knows this, but, you know, you just tolerate such people. You know intuitively that you can't turn it off. There is no off switch on such a person. And so it's often wasting your breath in order to try to educate them because they're a fool. They don't learn. There are other fools that don't appear foolish. They appear wise, yet they're pushing beyond the envelope. They're going farther. They're trying to say that they have insight into things that they don't have insight into. And so you shouldn't believe either of these people. And so especially beware of the fool that doesn't appear on the surface to be a fool. You just need to be especially watchful for them. And the eighth point starts at verse 18. Because of laziness, the building decays, and through idleness of hands, the house leaks. A feast is made for laughter, and wine makes merry, but money answers everything. You get nowhere through laziness. We all know this. Uh, laziness leaves you right where you are, one of the best commercials I'd ever seen against drug abuse was a commercial I saw where this kid is in his basement, and I shouldn't say kid because he's probably 30 years old by now, but he and his buddy are down in his basement smoking marijuana. 
And he's just saying, people say that uh, smoking marijuana gets you into worse drugs. Uh, you know, and obviously he doesn't do it, worse drugs. But yet he's smoking marijuana in his basement. And then you hear the door upstairs slam. And he's like, mom's home. And he's trying to get rid of the marijuana smoke and burn this. He's 30 years old. He's still living in his mother's basement. That's the thing that drugs do. It just causes you to waste your life. You're not doing anything productive with your time. That is what is being sapped away from you by focusing so much on something like that. And so it's a, it's a truth that entropy is at work in our world, attempting to destroy everything that you type A people are doing. And you know this. I mean, what mom here doesn't know that? You've just got to work so hard to maintain structure and order in your homes. And so diligence is required. All of us have to work hard to do this, or it takes us over. We become overwhelmed by it. Diligence is required. And that's the eighth point. The last point is in verse 20. Do not curse the king even in your thought. Do not curse the rich even in your bedroom. For a bird of the air may carry your voice, and a bird in flight may tell the matter. Last week we spoke in depth about this, so I won't cover it today, just to repeat that authorities exist and be they good or evil, they do carry a sword, and they do have tremendous power. So we just have to be careful how we oppose them and when we choose to oppose them. So now let's turn back to verse 1 of chapter 9, and that concludes our portion on wisdom. And now we'll start with faithfulness. For I considered all this in my heart so that I could declare it all, that the righteous and the wise and their works are in the hand of God. People know neither love nor hatred by anything they see before them. These two sentences seem odd at first to be placed together as they are. The righteous and the wise and their works are in the hand of God. So what does it mean that the righteous and their works are in the hand of God? There's a popular commercial that you might have come to mind about being in good hands. It means you're protected, you're secure, you're safe. And so this is exactly what this means. You're in the hand of God, meaning that God holds you for your good, for your protection, for your security and safety. But then the next sentence is interesting. It says... People know neither love nor hatred by anything they see before them. From our perspective, it's not always obvious that we're in the hand of God. The first sentence declares we are, but the second sense casts not doubt upon the reality of it, but doubt upon the experience of it. And so bad things happen to good people. We know this. And again, we have to question what bad means in context. Because we know in Romans that it's only supposed to be good things that happen to us good people. And so there you have to question the definition of good. Only God knows the proper definition in the proper context. So what we perceive as bad, as we see it happen to anybody on earth, if it happens to us, we know by faith that it is to our good. It's not a bad. And so people might come to us and comfort us, and yet we know deep down 
it's still we have to struggle through the impact upon such things in our lives, like what happened with the Nissans. But yet, we know ultimately that God's determined will in our lives is for our good. And so we will always benefit by ultimate good from God. But our perspective is our human perspective. It's not God's. Only God can see. And uh, it's interesting because uh, I didn't know whether I'd bring this up, but I think this is the appropriate time because this sentence, you know how often you make statements and they go from one extreme to the other. They're just making the points. And yet when I read this, and it said, people know neither love nor hatred by anything they see before them. It seems like it's a statement of fact and it covers 100%. But we know that's not true because you feel God's love. You, you sense it. You know when he's answered a prayer that you've had on your heart. And what's funny is yesterday I was at work and I, was, I just sat down to begin working on the sermon. And I'm kind of absentmindedly messing with this. I had taken the bandage off and a month ago I would gotten a splinter in my finger, my pointer finger. And so the last two weeks, you might have seen, I had a blue Band-Aid on. It's just, that's what they use in the food industry, and we happen to have some of those. And you, you don't want to know why they're blue. But uh, anyway, I'm sitting there, and I pull off the Band-Aid, and, and I'm doing what Tabitha told me not to do. I'm, I'm wetting it with my mouth because I'm thinking, okay, maybe I can get this sucker out now. So I'm, I'm kind of biting on it, and I can't feel anything. I haven't felt the splinter the whole month it's been in there. But... The thought crosses my mind, you know, Paul complained to God of a thorn in the flesh. Oh, here, I have a thorn in the flesh. And as I was pulling my mouth away, I thought, well, you know, God didn't resolve that for Paul. And we all know that that's just a metaphor for something much worse. But I'm just thinking, you know, God does what he wants. And I prayed, you know, I prayed, you know, God, please. And then, I, and then I looked down, and it was no different. I squeezed it, and it was like a miracle. I had a half-inch thorn sticking out of my finger, like that. I'd never seen it before. I didn't know it was in there. I thought there was something in there because it was infected all this time. But, I mean, honestly, I just went like that, and it shot out like it was a cannon. It was just the most bizarre thing. It was surreal. It was like the alien scene where the monster pops out. <laughs> and I just, and I just, I wanted my camera. I wanted my, my I, 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 it's like, this is amazing. And so I started looking for it. I couldn't find it. But I called Tabitha right away, and I explained it all to her, and she said she's going to frame it for me. I brought it home. Because it was just, yes, yes, we can at times be very confused and doubt God's love for us. But yet, here I am, sitting here, the thought crosses my mind that I have this thorn in the flesh, ha, 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 dear God, I pop, after a month. So I just had to share that. I don't know where it's appropriate, but I did it here. So uh, let's go on to verse 2, shall we? All things come alike to all. One event happens to the righteous and the wicked, to the good and the clean, the unclean, to him who sacrifices, him who does not sacrifice. And so in, my, in the notes, you can see that I have that kind of spelled out there with colors. And so now I'll explain these colors in the worksheet. You have the yellow, and then you have the orange. With the yellow, it's obviously talking about the saved, about the righteous being in the hand of God. And then it contrasts all of these things in situations where sometimes we just don't know. This stuff is happening to us, but yet the same things happen to the unbelievers. So how are we to discern God's uh, blessing in this? And then we go to this next verse. So you can see yellow, yellow and orange, Orange. So I just kind of want to convey that. You've got this, this separation between the saved and the lost. 
So, what good is it to be in God's hand if we can't discern the difference? So, that's my question to you. What good is it? The, the, the reality, and I believe you all know this, the reality is that we must trust. It's all on faith. So, regardless of our circumstances, we have to trust that God wants what's best for us, that everything that happens to us is doing this. Now, imagine, if you will, a world in which, because you went to church, you didn't get toothaches. You didn't get sunburn. Your car never ran out of gas on the freeway. You never got into auto accidents. Imagine a world where because you were just in a church service, these were the fringe benefits you received. We, we couldn't beat people out of this church. I mean, everybody would be coming to church. Oh, I'm here for my Teflon coating. So see, there is this faith that must be at work in our world in order to wean us away from just wanting quid pro quo from God. God, I did this for you now, I'm waiting for my reward. God, I did this for you now, I'm waiting for my reward. That's how unbelievers think. That's how materialists think. And we must not think like that. One event happens to all, yes, but again, we don't know God's motivation in bringing the same thing to different people. So now in verse 3, we read, This is an evil, and all that is done under the sun, that one thing happens to all. Truly the hearts of the sons of men are full of evil. Madness is in their hearts while they live, and after that they go to the dead. You can see that Solomon is a little ticked off that the things that he expects should only go to the faithful are also going to the unfaithful, the unclean, the ones that don't come to service, the ones that don't tithe their money. So see, there is this frustration that Solomon feels from a worldly perspective. The hearts of the sons of men are full of evil, he says. And I believe here he's mainly talking about unbelievers, but obviously it could apply to us as well. Paul in the first Corinthians letter, in chapter 6, where he's telling these people they shouldn't be suing one another, he says this, Do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? Do not be deceived. Neither fornicators, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor homosexuals, nor sodomites, nor thieves, nor covetous, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor extortioners will inherit the kingdom of God. And such were some of you. But you were washed, but you were sanctified, but you were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus and by the Spirit of our God. And so the righteous, we the righteous, are called from the ranks of the sinful fallen daily weekly, monthly, yearly. And so, yes, it's wonderful that we can have covenant children grow up in the church and never know the depths of depravity that these titles, these monikers here reflect. But the fact is, is that many of our fellow believers were these, and yet they gave them up and now cling to faith just as we do, yet we can so easily forget and we can so easily look down upon those that are outside the church, involved in all of this, 
or even inside the church that used to be involved in some of this and yet still might indulge in it. Because after all, Paul is criticizing the Corinthians for this behavior persisting into the church. So these people have not yet really come to understand that these are things that they must sacrifice, they must give up. So this that we want to be protected from as Christians, really, why do we deserve to be protected from it first? We don't. The only merit we have is Christ. Our works are meaningless to God in terms of our justification, in terms of our ability to enter into his presence. He will tell us that there is treasure in heaven for our works, and this is a wonderful thing. But compared to the sacrifice of Christ, we have these little pitiful piles of treasure that couldn't in any way have purchased our freedom from sin. Yet they're real. They're real treasures that we have piling up in heaven, yes. Entirely unrelated to justification. Entirely insufficient for our justification. So now, we get to through 3 here, and towards the end of 3 he says, and after that they go to the dead. Now he's entering into this morbid, let's say, interest in the dead. And let's read on. Madness is in their hearts while they live, and after that they go to the dead. But for him who is joined to all the living, there is hope. For a living dog is better than a dead lion. Now we know death forms this great divide that we cannot cross, we cannot even see into, nor do those that have gone on see back such that they can communicate anything to us. The only insights we have into this is what Jesus proclaimed in the story of Lazarus, the rich man, and Lazarus, and the other where Samuel was raised up from the grave. Those are really the only insights we have into anything beyond death, as well as maybe in Revelation, where the saints that are under the uh, altar are asking to be freed and have this and that done on the earth. We have some insights into it. But still, death is the great divide. God has intended it for that purpose. You can see I put in, the, uh, in your notes, it is appointed for men to die once, but after this, the judgment from Hebrews 9. So uh, Roman Catholicism and their teaching on purgatory is really to indulge in what is most likely man's most incredible desire, and that is to somehow control things beyond death. And so, with the concept of purgatory, it is not the dead that can control it, but it is the living. You can have an impact upon the hereafter. All it takes is money. And I've got a bank account I can have you send it to, and I'll set you up. You know, your relatives can be free in, I don't know, a month, maybe a year. So see, there is this tremendous pressure to give people this type of ability. And so, in my opinion, bad people can indulge in that. They can offer this service to people. The whole name it and claim it is just filled with such people. And then the latter part of four says, for a living dog is better than a dead lion. Now, uh, we like dogs. I mean, in our culture, we tend to like dogs. But uh, for the greater part of history, people have hated dogs. Dogs are vile creatures that just are out there scavenging and uh, running in packs, and you have to fear them when you're traveling. So 
you compare that to a lion. Now, a lion is dangerous, obviously, but a lion, but by contrast to a dog, is just so much more noble, so much more regal. I mean, you don't have the dog of Judah. You have uh, the... Uh, who's the guy that killed all the priests of Abiathar? Uh, he was Doeg the Edomite. He was called a dog. Yet you have the lion of Judah. So see, dog, lion. just But a living dog is better than a dead lion. So you see that death just is that finality. It separates everything. That dead lion is now meaningless. There's an Italian proverb, and I'd heard it before. I didn't know it was from Italy. But it was that when the chess game is over, the king and the pawn go back into the same box. So see, the lion and the dog, when they're dead, they're just dead. Just as us. I remember watching, and now I loved Ronald Reagan. I have no idea whether he was a believer, a very unusual man in terms of faith. But I remember seeing his funeral out overlooking the Pacific Ocean. It was just beautiful. And yet I thought, at the heart of all of this pomp and circumstance, there is just a dead person, a body in a box that's about to be planted in the ground. Just like occurs all over the country every day, many, many, many times a day. So regardless of the pomp and circumstance, for the dead person, it's no different. They're entering into the hereafter that we have no insight into. Now, death separates us, and let me read verse 5. For the living know that they will die, for the dead know nothing, and they have no more reward for the memory of them is forgotten. The living know that they will die. That knowledge is tremendous advantage to the living. We know we will die. So therefore, we should use that knowledge to our advantage. We ourselves should recognize that we will die and that we have to make use of this time wisely that we have on earth. And so people that shun God and yet give themselves over to lives of frivolity, uh, they are not using that time wisely. They're not using that knowledge well. This, uh, this is a whistling it through the graveyard aspect of our world. It's just so common. And it's become so common in Western cultures that uh, they really mock people who fear death now. Oh, everybody knows that death is just the big nothing. Why would you fear that? Just live how you want to live. So now let's go on to the next part, and that is starting in verse 7, and that is where we are to be joyful. Go, eat your bread with joy, and drink your wine with a merry heart, for God has already accepted your works. Let your garments always be white, and your head lack no oil. So, eat your bread with joy, drink your wine with a merry heart. I've mentioned a couple times that eating and drinking are euphemisms for all of life. Enjoy life. God has given you the gift of life. Enjoy it. Let your garments always be light, uh, white. Let your head lack no oil. Now, in that culture, this was to be uh, protected, to be comfortable. It's like with us. It would say, uh, let your clothes always be comfortable and let your house be filled with air conditioning or something like that. You're just living comfortably. God is blessing you. Solomon, God through Solomon, is blessing you and just saying, I've created you to enjoy life. Enjoy life. He, he gives you these gifts, and he does not restrict your enjoyment of them. Even for the unbelievers, this is good wisdom. You know, they might go too far and not think about death. That's why that was covered first. 
But yet we are to enjoy life. And it says, for God has already accepted your works. Now, I believe what this means is it doesn't mean in the concept of that you're all believers and that type of thing, that you're all blessing God by what you're doing, but it's that he has created man to enjoy this created world. And, he, and even with the curse, even with sin filling our world, he's not restrained that. We still experience so much joy, or can, not all people do, but yet that's what we're called to do. We're called to experience joy every day. And we that know God, of course, should be very comfortable experiencing joy and enjoying the good things that God has given us in this world. And then he gives some of them here in 9.9. Live joyfully with the wife whom you love. See, this is why I know that this is not negative. These are very positive statements. People think they're negative because of what comes afterwards, but we'll, but we'll cover that right now. Live joyfully with the wife whom you love all the days of your vain life, which he has given you under the sun, all your days of vanity, for that is your portion in life and in the labor which you perform under the sun. All that comes after that live joyfully with the wife whom you love all the days of your and then vain life, all of that tends to cause some commentators to view this negatively, cynically. That this is Solomon saying, eat, drink, and marry for tomorrow you die. But I don't get that from this at all. What he is doing is he is restricting himself to what is within man's grasp. He's first told us about death. Yes, fear death. Fear, fear the end, the ultimate that will come. If you are unprepared to meet your maker, then yes, you should fear death. But don't fear life. Live life. Enjoy life. That's what he's saying. And, and, and without any reservations, he's saying, go, enjoy life. You, it's not that you deserve it. It's just that God has blessed you with it. So make use of it. Now, let's go on to verse 10. And this, I think, also, this theme that is introduced here briefly in 9.10 is also introduced in chapter 11. Whatever your hand finds to do, do it with your might. For there is no work or device or knowledge or wisdom in the grave where you are going. Again, he's contrasting living with being dead. And living is better. Live life. It reminded me of this commercial back when I was young. I was, I was actually very young. But there was a beer commercial. And it said, you only go around once. You've got to grab all the gusto you can. Of course, for them, that meant buying and drinking their beer and making them lots of money. But yet, their principle is still a good one, I think. You do only go around once. And these commercials, what they would do is they would show these people really enjoying life. I mean, they're doing cool things. Uh, the one commercial I looked up on YouTube they were actually out on a treasure hunt. And so they're, after they come back with all this gold from under the ocean, they celebrate by drinking a Schlitz beer. So that is, I think, a good... And, and then I know that Pastor Kaiser and Josh were at the beer fest yesterday. I told Josh I couldn't go or you wouldn't have understood me as perhaps as hopefully well as you did today. But uh, I would have gone if I didn't have to preach today. So now... Number, uh, or the fourth one is be hopeful. And let me read the last two verses. 9-11. I returned and saw under the sun that the race is not to the swift, nor the battle to the strong, nor bread to the wise, nor riches to men of understanding, nor favor to men of skill, but time and chance happen to them all. For man also does not know his time. Like fish taken in a cruel net, 
like birds caught in a snare. So the sons of men are snared in an evil time when it falls suddenly upon them. He begins with these five uh, comparisons. The race is not to the swift, the battle not to the strong, the bread not to the wise, riches to men of understanding, favor to men of skill. So he says time and chance happen to them all. Now we know, we perceive time and chance is that life. In other words, God has not made this world to be deterministic. And yet, often, too often, we behave as if it is. We're not going to oppose. That's how every soldier on the battlefield before Goliath felt. There's no way I'm going out there. That guy is going to kill me, right? That is their eyes telling them, hey, that guy's nine feet tall. I'm like, what, five feet squat, and that guy's going to kill me. And yet here you have David, who just rises up, accepts this type of wisdom, saying, hey, this does not mean that he will beat me just because he's so much bigger. God is on my side. He is for me. This guy is defying the living army of God. So what we, he did then was took this at his word. Solomon, his son, who wrote it later, but yet he was living this already. So see, God practices this as well. And in the handout, I have an excerpt from 1 Corinthians uh, 27. God has chosen the foolish things of the world to put to shame the wise, the weak things to shame the mighty. He's using us. We ourselves are evidence that God does not behave in this deterministic way, this humanistic, materialistic way. But yet, we are humans. We are limited in this way, and so we can easily be overwhelmed and left without hope. And that's why this last portion is to be hopeful. Our God is a God that is constantly upsetting the person that appears about to seize victory. The evil that is about to win can be turned on its head. And so what does God want us to do? He wants us to be engaged. He wants us to be living life, defying odds, fighting Goliaths. All of this is living by faith, living for him as opposed to for ourselves, living with eyes of faith as opposed to these material eyes that see the size of the Goliaths that we faith. So be faithful. Live by faith, not by sight. Have confidence in God and not your circumstances. Be joyful. God created you to enjoy life. Do so to his glory. This honors him. Be hopeful. God has chosen the foolish and the weak things of this world to shame the wise and the strong. And fourthly, be prudent. God's world operates on principles that he himself created and he abides by. And he expects us to abide by. Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you for your presence with us now. We ask you, Lord, to have your Holy Spirit to have these words sink in, to take root in our minds and in our lives. Lord, we want to be wise and prudent in what we do. We want to be uh, hopeful. We want to live by faith and not by sight. And we ask you, Father, to make us joyful. I pray that we would always look past all of what the world considers bad in our circumstances and yet we would always know that we are securely in your hand, that it is you that controls the circumstances of our lives. We trust you, Lord. We love you, and we want to please you.
We ask you now to send your Holy Spirit to fill us, to fill this place. And we thank you, Father, for all of your many gifts uh, given to us through the mercy and the grace and the merit of Christ. It's in his name that we pray. Amen.